There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.28, Alex of Hesse, A Terrible Damoclean Uncertainty. Welcome back to your regularly scheduled Other Half programming. I hope that you enjoyed that little surprise supplemental on Anna Guerin. I was a bit worried, it was a bit niche, but I've had some really nice feedback, which is always lovely. We last left Alex of Hesse just after her coronation as Tsarina of Russia. She had been on the throne for a year, and had already gained reputation for being a beautiful but cold woman uninterested in the social side of being an empress, and much more focused on supporting her husband. Concerned that Nicky wasn't exerting his influence sufficiently, or making his will felt, she was a constant source of encouragement, much to the chagrin of his ministers. All of this made Alex unpopular with the Russian court and the people at large, and this was only made worse following the Kadinka tragedy, following her and Nicky's coronation. Today, we will see Alex settle into her position as Empress of Russia and find that her bad impression was to stick. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters for keeping this show going. I'd especially like to thank Kira, Katie, Vanessa, Cara and Tommy, who are my latest patrons. You guys are the best. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. When it comes to royalty, some things never change, and nothing is quite as immovable as the requirement for a new queen or empress to produce children. 
Nothing destroys dynasties quite like a succession crisis, especially in a highly autocratic system like Russia's. Unlike many of her European neighbours, Russia had actually had quite a lot of female rulers over the past few centuries. Indeed, five of the 19 Romanov Tsars had been women, along with two female regents, and amongst them, of course, was Catherine the Great, one of the most successful Russian rulers of the day. However, after the reign of Catherine, her son, Tsar Paul, had brought in a version of the French Salic Law, meaning that a woman could never again rule Russia unless literally every other male heir died. And since there were a ton of Romanovs, that was never going to happen. So, when Alex fell pregnant in 1895, the whole nation was hoping and praying for a son, not least the Tsar and Tsarina themselves. Nikki was confident the child would be a boy, telling his mother that the baby has, quote, become very big and kicks about and fights a great deal inside. Surely, a big, bouncy and boisterous boy was on the way. When Alex entered labour, the artillerymen of St. Petersburg were put on high alert. A 300-shot salute if it were a boy, 101 if it were a girl. On the 16th of November, 1895, the people of St. Petersburg stopped what they were doing as the guns started to fire, counting the shots as they came. This is what people go up to before Twitter. They counted up to 101 and then waited expectantly for the next shot, but none came. It was a girl. Nikki's sister Xenia wrote in her diary, quote, The birth of a daughter to Nikki and Alex. A great joy. Though it's a pity it's not a son. The birth pains began already last night. Poor Nikki and Mama were quite weak with exhaustion. The baby is huge, weighing 10 pounds and had to be pulled out with forceps. A terrible thing to witness. But thank God, everything ended well. Although many were disappointed, Nikki and Alex were simply delighted to have been delivered of a healthy child, especially after a tricky birth. Nikki wrote in his diary that, quote, I can hardly believe it's really our child. God, what happiness. And Alex wrote in a letter that, quote, You can imagine our intense happiness now that we have such a precious little being of our own to care for and look after. They named her Olga, a name that means holy or blessed, and she could not have been born to more doting parents. Like her mother, Alex nursed her children herself, still highly unusual for royal women of the time, and would sing to her children to sleep at night, sitting by their cribs knitting while they napped. The Tsarina was only 23. There was plenty of time for her to have more children, and indeed they came at regular two-year intervals over the intervening years. Each time, when they were born, the people of St. Petersburg stopped and counted up to 101, but no more. Olga, indeed, then, was joined by a brood of sisters. First Tatiana, and then Marie. Each child was greeted with love, but also an ever-growing sense of disappointment. When Alex learned of Tatiana's sex, she exclaimed, quote, My God, it is again a daughter! What will the nation say? Moreover, each pregnancy took more and more out of Alex. While pregnant with Marie, the pains were so great that she had to be pushed around in a wheelchair for months, and even had attendants by her bedside at night to help her roll over. The pressure was intense. Whispers abounded that she couldn't have a son, and the court scorned her for her inability to provide Russia with the much-needed heir. During her fourth pregnancy, Alex grew increasingly desperate, 
and turned to Nikki's cousins, Milica and Stana, for help. They had one of the all-time great nicknames, those two, the Black Peril, earned because of their interest in the darker, occultier nether regions of Russian Orthodoxy. Ghosts, magic, astrology, seances, you name it, they were into it. Any quack, mystic, or cult leader that came by St. Petersburg found a ready welcome at their table, and in her desperation, Alex was willing to try anything to ensure that she would give birth to a boy. When she confided this fear to the Black Peril, they suggested that she talk to a Frenchman named Dr. Philippe Nazier Vachot. Now, the first thing to note about Dr. Philippe is that he was not a doctor. Indeed, he had been hounded out of Paris after being exposed for practising medicine without a licence. He was actually a butcher's assistant by trade, but had found great success as a faith healer, and his supposed party trick was being able to determine the sex of a baby in utero, and reportedly even was able to change it. Intrigued, Alex persuaded Nikki to come with her to visit Philippe during a state visit to France in 1901. Just imagine for a second your head of state pausing a diplomatic visit to your most vital ally to visit a faith healer. They were, however, sufficiently impressed by him to bring him back to Russia on their return. Following what Philippe called a moral examination of the Tsarina, he stated that if she followed his prescribed regimen, she would have a son. This regimen consisted of hours of prayer, certain apparently disgusting herbal potions, and moonlit baths on, quote, astrologically auspicious nights. Alex was convinced that she had done everything right this time. Surely all her efforts and prayer would be rewarded with a son. If nothing else, the law of averages was on her side. But yet again, the St. Petersburg gunners halted after the 101st shot. It was another girl, this one called Anastasia. The reviews came in swiftly and were damning. Quote, My God, what a disappointment, wrote Grand Duchess Zenya. The New York Times splashed, quote, Tsar has another daughter, Russian people again disappointed. And the poet K.R. wrote, quote, Forgive us, Lord, if we all felt disappointment instead of joy. Nicky, however, showed no such disappointment in his diary, merely noting his delight and relief that there had been no complications during the birth. Despite his failure to ensure that her last pregnancy resulted in the birth of a son, Nikki and Alex kept Dr. Philippe around for a little longer. But following a phantom pregnancy that he also confidently predicted would be the harbinger of the long-awaited son and heir, he was finally dismissed from court in 1903. The Tsar's four daughters were brought up in much the same manner as Nikki and his siblings had. Despite the opulence of their surroundings, they slept on uncomfortable army cots. While they bathed in ornate bathtubs, they received only cold showers in the morning. They were, however, dressed in pretty, expensive matching outfits, usually white dresses with coloured sashes and blue ribbons in their hair. Their daily routine went this way when they were young girls. They would be woken up and brought down to their mother, who would then tell them about what they would be up to that day. Nikki had long since gone to work. They would then bathe, dress and have breakfast before they would be sent outside to play. Lunchtime was the formal meal of the day, with their father and most of the court. 
Alex usually sat this one out, as she hated formal occasions. After that, it was more play, then an English-style afternoon tea, and bed. It wasn't a challenging upbringing, certainly not one of which their grandmother Alice would have approved, but it was a loving and comfortable one. Olga, the eldest, was the most like her father. Shy, kind and innocent around the family, she was a great lover of reading, often pre-reading books for her mother to tell her if it was the sort of thing that she'd be into. To others, though, she had something of the Romanov spirit. My favourite story about Olga is that after being told the biblical story of Joseph and the morals that brothers really ought not to murder each other, she replied, quote, It was a shame of the father. Joseph was not the eldest, and the beautiful coat should have been given to the eldest son. The other brothers knew that, and perhaps that was why they put him in the pit. Poor, poor Joseph, indeed. Tatiana, the next eldest, was the most like their mother. She was the tallest, most elegant, and most authoritative of the Grand Duchesses. She was that annoying younger sibling that was just better than you at things, despite barely ever practising. She outshone everyone at music, and quickly became the leader of the gang, nicknamed by all of them as the Governess. Marie was the pretty one, with rosy cheeks and big, earnest blue eyes that were nicknamed Marie's saucers. She was flirty and bubbly, and cared little for doing much of anything at all. Of all of them, she most longed for a future in which she would have a husband and children of her own. And then, finally, there was Anastasia, everyone's favourite Romanov. A cheeky, playful tomboy, she loved playing tricks, climbing trees, and impersonating the accents of those she came across. Called, quote, a true genius in naughtiness, she could be a challenging child, but was beloved by her family. The sisters grew up without any real friends, and so only really had each other for company. They shared everything they owned with each other, and spent all their time together. This developed an incredibly close bond that lasted all their lives. Their education was fairly rudimentary, as this wasn't really a priority for Nikki and Alex. One observer remarked, quote, I was amazed that such a family which possessed all the means, did not surround the children with the best possible teachers. Just how little attention was paid to the children's development could be judged by the interest with which they listened to the most ordinary things, as though they had never seen, read, or heard about anything. Indeed, for the first eight years or so of their lives, each of them had almost no real instruction at all, and even when teachers were brought in, they were only really taught the basics. There was a bit of literature, a bit of science, a bit of maths. The only subject that was taken particularly seriously was languages. Alex was keen for her daughters to be fluent in four tongues. French, as it was the language of the court. Russian, as it was the language of the people. And English and German, as these were the languages of most of their family, and potentially of their future spouses. The girls loathed languages and since they were rarely exposed to native speakers, they apparently picked up bizarre accents. They were most proficient in Russian and English, though apparently they spoke each in thick accents of the other, which must have sounded really weird. 
Most of their time was spent at the royal retreat at Zaskoselo, or Tsar's village, a palace situated 15 miles south of St. Petersburg. It was described by one visitor as, quote, an enchanted fairyland. Set in 800 acres of parkland, its grounds were full of ponds and canals, traversed with ornate bridges. Rows of lush fruit trees divided up the flower gardens, which also had dotted here and there gifts and treasures from all over the world. This wonderland was surrounded by a tall iron fence, guarded by fierce Cossack soldiers, while 5,000 more soldiers garrisoned the park itself. You couldn't have designed a more safe, idyllic space to isolate yourself from the world outside. At its centre was the immense Catherine Palace, but just to the side, in a secluded corner, was the Alexander Palace, and that was where Alex created the family home. Although small by Romanov standards, it still had 100 rooms, and Alex set about decorating it in her own, frankly, questionable style. She had a bit of a fixation with chintz and porcelain figurines, which she put everywhere. One visitor remarked, quote, It is incredible that these people can live surrounded by such bric-a-brac when they could have the most beautiful things in the world. Apparently, the ghastliest room in the Alexander Palace was Alex's private drawing room. Her favourite colour was purple, and so everything in there was purple, from the walls and the curtains to the furniture and the upholstery. It was widely mocked by everyone that went in there, but she loved it. It was her own private sanctuary. Through a set of double doors in this drawing room, Alex could access hers and Nikki's bedroom. Highly unusually for the time, they shared a bed, and she too decorated this room predominantly in purple, with floral prints recalling an English country garden on the walls. The majority of the structural changes that Alex made surrounded improving the family's privacy. The second floor of their living quarters was converted into a vast nursery complex, with bedrooms, classrooms and playrooms being constructed, with lush carpets fitted to cover hardwood floors and giant windows inserted to increase the natural light. At Alex's insistence, a private staircase was added between her rooms and the nursery so that she could come and go as she pleased and always be near the children. Nikki was no less delighted by the changes, saying that, quote, Sometimes we simply sit there in silence, and admire the walls, the fireplaces, the furniture. In the early years of his reign, Nicky and his family split their time between St. Petersburg and Zaskoselo, but quite quickly they semi-permanently ensconced themselves in their own private oasis. This privacy allowed Alex to deepen her devotion to Russian orthodoxy. As you may recall, her refusal to convert from Lutheranism had nearly prevented her from marrying Nicky, But, just like her sister Ella, no sooner had she converted than she became besotted with her new faith. The traditions, dogma and rituals of the faith fascinated her, as did the position it held in the everyday lives of the Russian peasantry. The bond between the Tsar and the peasants ran extremely deep and was cemented by the semi-divine position that the Tsar held within Orthodox liturgy. He was seen as their protector, their father figure, and Alex bought into this wholeheartedly. As we know, 
she had considerable misgivings about the Russian elite, and so saw the peasants' simple lives as representing the ideal version of Russia. Now, of course, this was an intensely patronising position. A Russian peasant's life wasn't simple by choice. It was enforced by institutional hardship and punctuated by periodic famine. But Alex saw their lack of artifice as proof that they were just better than the people she was forced to mix with. Why talk to the posh people when the real soul of Russia was out in the fields? Of course, she didn't really talk to them either. Far too smelly. But the pedestal upon which she placed the Russian peasants' class would lead her later to welcoming a certain Siberian preacher into her family's life. The early years of the new century saw a wave of unrest course through Russia. Strikes, protests and even mutinies were fairly commonplace, even with the heavy hand of the Akrana, the Tsar's secret police, coming down hard on the dissidents. Both in the cities and in the countryside, ordinary Russians agitated against injustice and repression. So the powder was being added to the keg but it needed a spark to set it off. And that spark came at the opposite end of the empire from Zaska Selo. The Russo-Japanese War was one of those conflicts that never should have happened. Japan was an emerging power, and due to the rampant racism of the time, they were considered to be an inferior nation and an inferior race. Nikki was no exception to this, and so he enacted a foreign policy in the Far East that paid very little heed to Japanese honour. This, inevitably, led to war breaking out in 1904. The news was greeted by mass celebrations in St. Petersburg, and Alex herself was happy with the news. In a letter to her brother, she wrote, quote, We did everything to avoid it, but it seems it had to be, and it has done our country good. Alex did her duty to help the troops, organising workshops in the Winter Palace where women of the court and others from the lower orders met to prepare supplies and make uniforms for the soldiers on the front lines. Eventually, she managed to mobilise some 5,000 women to the cause and set her daughters to task as well, encouraging them to knit hats and scarves. The initial good feeling, unfortunately, did not last long. A surprise attack crippled the Russian fleet in the east. When Nikki dispatched the Baltic fleet to take its place, it was ambushed at the Battle of Tsushima and completely destroyed in a matter of minutes. The army did a little better, but it was outnumbered in the theatre, and even when reinforcements arrived, they could do little to stop the Japanese. Thus, the early wave of optimism was crushed, and this national disgrace poured fuel on the fire of unrest. In January 1905, a minor strike at a steelworks ballooned into a massive demonstration. Led by a priest named Father Gapon, who was actually a police plant looking to moderate the crowd, a march was organised at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg on Sunday the 22nd of January to present the Tsar with a petition. It read, quote, we, workers and inhabitants of the people of St. Petersburg, 
have come to you, Sovereign, to seek justice and protection. We are impoverished and oppressed. We are burdened with work and insulted. We are treated not like humans, but like slaves, who must suffer a bitter fate and keep silent. And we have suffered, but we only get pushed deeper and deeper into a gulf of misery, ignorance and lack of rights. Despotism and arbitrariness are suffocating us. We are gasping for breath. Do not refuse to come to the aid of your people. Lead it out of the grave of poverty, ignorance and lack of rights. Grant it the opportunity to determine its own destiny and deliver it from them the unbearable yoke of the bureaucrats. Tear down the walls that separates you from your people and let it rule the country together with you. You have been placed on the throne for the happiness of the people. The bureaucrats, however, snatch this happiness out of our hands. The petition then lists various demands for reform, including an elected parliament, or Duma, universal education, free speech, and relief for the poor. Nikki refused to travel to the capital to receive the petition, instead sending thousands of guards to guard his palace. The crowd numbered between 50 and 200,000, no one seems to agree, and was made up of men, women and children in good spirits. This was a remarkably positive march. Surely, they believed, the Tsar would hear their grievances and act on them. He is being misled by evil ministers. Once he hears us, everything will be set right. They carried crucifixes and pictures of the Tsar and Tsarina, and cheerfully sang songs, including God Save the Tsar, as they walked. Suddenly, they found their path blocked by soldiers, the guns levelled. The crowd pressed forward, sure that the Tsar, their protector, would not harm them. And that was when the shooting started. By the time it was all over, hundreds lay dead and hundreds more were wounded. This massacre, for there is no other word for it, has become known to history as Bloody Sunday. The bond between the Tsar and the people was shattered on that day. The leader of the march summed up the feeling of the people when he said, quote, We no longer have a Tsar. Today, a river of blood divides him from the Russian people. Alex was shocked at all the death and poured out her feelings to her sister Victoria. I shall quote parts of it now, as it is really illustrative of how she saw the situation and her own priorities. Quote, You understand the crisis we are going through. It is a time of trials indeed. My Nicky's cross is a heavy one to bear, all the more as he has nobody on whom he can thoroughly rely and who can be a real help to him. He has had so many bitter disappointments, but through it all he remains brave and full of faith in God's mercy. He tries so hard, works with such perseverance, but the lack of what I call real men is great. Of course they must exist somewhere, but it is difficult to get at them. The bad are always close at hand. Others, through false humility, keep in the background. We shall try to see more people, but it is difficult. So we see here Alex relating her familiar refrain that her husband was not to blame, it was his weak-willed ministers that were causing all of the trouble. She goes on to particularly blame the interior minister. 
Quote, Reforms can only be made gently with the greatest care and forethought. Now, we have precipitatedly been launched forth and cannot retrace our steps. All these disorders are thanks to his unpardonable folly, and he won't believe what Nicky tells him, does not agree with his point of view. Things are in a bad state, and it's abominably unpatriotic at the time when we are plunged into war to break forth with revolutionary ideas. In summary, if only people would just listen to their all-powerful, all-wise Tsar, then none of this would have happened. She next goes on to either lie through her teeth about what happened, or, more likely, relate a falsehood that had been provided to her. Quote, Yes, the troops, alas, were obliged to fire. Repeatedly the crowd was told to retreat, and that Nicky was not in town, as we are living here this winter, and that one would be forced to shoot, but they would not heed, and so blood was shed. On the whole, 92 killed and between 200 and 300 wounded. It is a ghastly thing, but had one not done it, the crowd would have grown colossal, and 1,000 would have been crushed. These numbers are, of course, totally misleading, as is her account of what happened. But note that she did not blame the crowd, only the agitators, for of course she still believed in that unshakable bond between ordinary Russian peasants and the Tsar. Quote, Petersburg is a rotten town, not an atom Russian. The Russian people are deeply and truly devoted to their sovereign, and the revolutionaries use his name for provoking them against landlords. Poor Nicky, he has a bitter, hard life to lead. Unfortunately for Alex, those same Russians that she had believed to be so loyal to her husband were picking up weapons and entering into revolt. Violence swept the cities, and strike action continued to grow. In October, millions of workers went on strike and took to the streets. From factory workers and telegraph operators to teachers and lawyers, they had all had enough. They wanted change. They wanted a Duma. They wanted better wages. They wanted political rights. The whole thing was led by a new organisation called the St. Petersburg Soviet, a workers' council that will become increasingly important in the years ahead. The entire country was on the brink of revolution, and there was no certainty that Tsarism would survive it. Thousands were killed in the repression, but the Tsarist state could not hold back the tide, and indeed was losing soldiers to mutiny at every turn. Nikki's prime minister, Sergei Vita, told the Tsar bluntly that if he didn't make the necessary reforms, then the coming revolution would, quote, sweep away a thousand years of history. Others, including Alex, favoured the establishment of a military dictatorship and full-blown martial law. But Vita managed to persuade the reluctant Tsar that reform was the only way forward. On the 30th of July, 1905, Nicky signed the October Manifesto that established, amongst other things, quote, freedom of conscience, speech, assembly and association to the Russian people, along with a Duma made up of members from every social class. No law could go into effect without its approval. At the stroke of a pen, Russia had gone from an autocracy to being a constitutional monarchy. But this brave new world didn't last long. 
much like with the Peasants' Revolt in medieval England. The Tsar waited for his people to become becalmed by his concessions and then unleashed brutal reprisals. The leaders of the Soviets in every major city were arrested and their organisations made illegal. So much for those freedoms in the manifesto. When the people went back onto the streets, though in smaller numbers, they were met with fierce resistance from soldiers brought back from the front lines of the war. Thousands died. In addition, the secret police cranked up the repression, arresting thousands of outspoken workers. If they were lucky, they were dismissed. If they were less lucky, they were sent to Siberia. If they were more unlucky, they would be shot. You get the picture, it was pretty nasty. And as for the Duma, after just one week of its first sitting, Nikki said that, quote, I am not convinced that this manifesto requires me to renounce the right of supreme power. He gave himself total power of the military, foreign policy, and the police. He granted himself veto power over anything the Duma decreed, and gave himself the right to dissolve it whenever he wanted. Which he did, repeatedly, over the years. Very quickly then, the concessions that had saved his throne were withdrawn, and the people stewed. But, for now, the Tsar estate was able to keep the lid on the revolutionary pot. So, I think it's fair to say that quite a bit was going on outside Nikki and Alex's oasis at Zasko Selo, but there was plenty of action going on at home as well. All of the trouble outside the palace only further underlined the precarious state of the succession. At present, the heir to the throne was Grand Duke Michael, the Tsar's eldest surviving brother, but no one at court was really keen to have him in charge. They wanted Alex to become pregnant again, and please, God, try not to screw it up this time. Not a real doctor, Philippe, had been dismissed, so Alex went back to the Black Peril. Yes, I'm going to keep calling them that because it's such a great name. Who suggested that she could benefit from the help of a man named Seraphim by making him a saint. Now, the first thing that you need to know about Seraphim is that he was a hermit who had been dead for 70 years. He did have a reputation for being a holy man, but he was several divisions down from the Premier League of Sainthood. There was a considerable outcry from the upper echelons of the Orthodox Church, which argued that to canonise him at this stage would violate centuries of ecclesiastical law. Alex, though, was having none of it, telling the Minister of Religion that, quote, everything is in the Tsar's power, even to the making of saints. She got her wish. Seraphim was canonised later that year, and, wouldn't you know it, shortly after that, Alex became pregnant again. Each of Alex's pregnancies, not to mention her miscarriages, had taken an increasing toll on her body. She was increasingly transported around the palaces in a wheelchair, and she was also a bit of a hypochondriac, which hardly helped matters. There was no guarantee that she would be able to have any more children after this pregnancy, so the pressure was heightened even further. When the baby came, it was all very swift. The royal family is set down to lunch, and the heavily pregnant Alex, for once, had joined them. All of a sudden, her water broke, and she was rushed upstairs. Just an hour later, she had given birth. 
Now, maybe things in St. Petersburg were a bit too hectic for people to stop and count the guns, but if they had, then they would have let out a great cheer, as, for the first time, the guns fired for a 102nd time, and onwards the full 300. It was, at last, a boy. Nicky wrote in his diary, quote, A great and unforgettable day for us, during which we were clearly visited by the grace of God. At 1.15 in the afternoon, Alex gave birth to a son, whom we named Alexei as we prayed. He was named for Alexei I, the father of Peter the Great, and apparently Nicky's favourite Tsar. He was 58 centimetres, or 23 inches in height, and weighed 11 pounds. To all, he was a healthy baby boy, exactly what Russia needed at this difficult time. Nikki's sister Zenya wrote, quote, He's an amazingly hefty baby, with a chest like a barrel, and generally has the air of a warrior knight. Alex could not have been more delighted with her son. One observer noted, quote, I could see she was transfused by the delirious joy of a mother who had at last seen her dearest wish fulfilled. But, of course, you all know what I'm about to say next. Alexei may have had all the appearance of a healthy child, but when he was just six weeks old, a terrible discovery was made. Alexei began to bleed from his navel, and the blood would not stop coming. For two full days he bled from the wound, the bandages doing nothing and his blood refusing to clot. A little while later, when Alex began to move around, bruises began to appear on his arms and legs. Within hours, they would swell up and turn dark blue, a sign of internal bleeding that was not being stopped in the normal way. We do not know when the doctors confirmed the diagnosis, but we do know what it was. Haemophilia. Alex had seen this before, and she knew what it meant. Her own brother Friedrich had had the disease and had died at the age of three after a fall. She also had two nephews through her sister Irene that had the disease, not to mention her uncle Leopold and a host of cousins. From the moment the diagnosis was made, Alex would never know a time when she wasn't beset by worry or fear. The attacks, when they came, were incredibly painful for Alexei. He would cry out in agony, but there was nothing anyone could do to stop them. Robert Massey, in Nicholas and Alexandra, put it this way, quote, She lived in the particular sunless world reserved for mothers of haemophiliacs. There is no more exquisite torture than watching helplessly as a beloved child suffers in extreme pain, but almost worse for the Empress than the actual episodes of bleeding was the terrible Damoclean uncertainty of haemophilia. Other chronic diseases may handicap a child and dismay the mother, but in time both learn to adjust their lives to medical facts. In haemophilia, however, there is no status quo. One minute, he could be playing happily and normally. The next, he might stumble, fall, and begin a bleeding episode that would take him to the brink of death. Alex had waited so long, endured so much pain and torment, and now that she finally had everything she wanted, life had bowled her this vicious bouncer. This news could not be allowed to spread. It must not be common knowledge that the future Emperor of Russia 
was afflicted by such a dangerous condition. The doctors were sworn to secrecy. No one outside the family's immediate circle knew. The cocoon within which the family lived at Zaskoselo became an impregnable fortress. And this, as we shall see, was one of Nicky and Alex's greatest mistakes. The isolation it entailed further distanced them from the court, especially Alex. When she did make public appearances, her face barely masked her anxiety, which to others came across as arrogance. The people never saw the future Tsar and accused Alex of mollycoddling her son. What was she hiding behind those palace walls? Alex's only solace in her torment was her faith. That was the only place in which she could find any answers, find any comfort. Alexei's doctors could not heal him, only God could do so. One of Nikki's brothers wrote that Alex, quote, refused to surrender to fate. She talked incessantly of the ignorance of physicians. She turned towards religion, and her prayers were tainted with a certain hysteria. The stage was set for the appearance of a miracle worker. And, wouldn't you know it, just such a man was, in the winter of 1905, arriving at Zaskoselo at the invitation of the Black Peril. His name? Grigory Rasputin. And on that cliffhanger, I will leave you for this week. Next time, we will properly introduce Rasputin and see how this Siberian faith healer became, through Alex's patronage, one of the most influential men in Russia in the lead-up to the outbreak of war and changed the country's history irrevocably forever. This is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.